Hello and welcome to the Horror and Opera podcast. In this Once in a Blue Moon podcast series, narrated by yours truly, the composer behind Horror and Opera Project, I will be exploring the fascinating background stories of some of the world's best pre-code horror films. In this episode particularly, I will be talking about F.W. Murnau's film Nosferatu. As many of you might know, Nosferatu was not an original work and was heavily based on the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. But the story of Murnau's production is as turbulent and fascinating as the legendary vampire tale itself. So let's begin where it all started, in the Dublin castle, where Bram Stoker worked as a civil servant. At the same time, he worked as a freelance journalist and theatre critic for an Irish newspaper, Dublin Evening Mail. Stoker was a contemporary of both Oscar Wilde, known for his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, as well as Sheridan Le Fanu, the author of the first vampire story Carmilla. Stoker actually worked with Le Fanu, who at the time co-owned the Dublin Evening Mail newspaper where Bram Stoker freelanced. In 1878, Stoker married Florence Balcom, whose former suitor had been Oscar Wilde. Stoker had known Wilde from his student days, having proposed him for membership of the university's Philosophical Society while he was president. After Stoker's death, Florence would play a key role in the distraction of most copies of F.W. Murnau's film Nosferatu. But where did Stoker draw inspiration for his famous vampire tale? According to Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew, who dedicated many years to studying and reconstructing his famous ancestor's writing, Stoker's influences were borrowed from many sources, both contemporary and folkloric. In the summer of 1890, a 45-year-old Bram Stoker entered the subscription library in Whitby, England, and requested a specific title, The Accounts of Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, by William Wilkinson. This wasn't a title found readily on the shelves, or typically made available to the general public. The library didn't even make it known they possessed the rare book. Access was only granted to those who asked for it. Patrons handled the title only under the watchful eye of the librarian, and it was returned to its resting place the moment business concluded. Upon receipt of the book, Stoker did not read it cover to cover or browse the text. He opened the pages to a specific section, made notes in his journal, and returned the tome to the librarian. He stopped next at the Whitby Museum, where he reviewed a series of maps and pieced together a travel route. The route began in the heart of London and ended upon a mountaintop deep within the wilds of Romania. The specific latitude and longitude were noted in his journal. From the museum, Bram then made his way to Whitby Harbour, where he spoke to several members of the Royal Coast Guard. They provided details of a sailing vessel, the Dimitri, that ran aground a few years earlier on the beach inside the protective harbour with only a handful of the remaining crew alive. The ship, which originated in Varna, an Eastern European port, was carrying a mysterious cargo, crates of earth. While investigating the damaged ship, rescue workers reported seeing a large black dog escape from the hull of the ship and run up from Tate Sands Beach into the graveyard of St. Mary's Church. 
When Bram Stoker wrote his iconic novel, The Original Preface, which was published in Macht Mirkana, the Icelandic version of the story, included this passage, quote, I am quite convinced that there is no doubt whatever that the events here described really took place, however unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first sight. And I am further convinced that they must always remain to some extent incomprehensible." End quote. He went on to claim that many of the characters in his novel were real people. All the people who have willingly, or unwillingly, played a part in this remarkable story are known generally and well-respected. Bram Stoker did not intend for Dracula to serve as fiction, but as a warning of a very real evil, a childhood nightmare all too real. Worried of the impact of presenting such a story as true, his editor, Otto Kilman, of Archibald Constable and Company, returned the manuscript with a single word of his own. No. Otto Kilman then went on to explain that London was still recovering from the Whitechapel murders. And with the killer still on the loose, they couldn't publish such a story without running the risk of generating mass panic. Changes would need to be made, factual elements would need to come out, and it would be published as fiction or not at all. When the novel was finally released on May 26, 1897, the first 102 pages of the manuscript had been cut, numerous alterations had been made to the text, and the epilogue had been shortened. In the 1980s, the original Dracula manuscript was discovered in a barn in rural northwestern Pennsylvania. Nobody knows how it made its way across the Atlantic. That manuscript, now owned by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, begins on the page 102. Jonathan Harker's journey on a train, once thought to be the beginning of the novel, was actually the beginning of chapter 4. This raises a question. What was on the first hundred pages? What was considered too real, too frightening for publication? Breadcrumbs and clues survive through Bram Stoker's notes, journals, and a recently translated Icelandic first edition of Dracula titled Macht Mirkrana, or Power of Darkness. Within that first edition, Bram left not only his original preface intact, but also parts of his original story, outside the reach of his UK publisher. More can be found within the short story Dracula's Guest, now known to have been excised from the original text of the novel. Many real events have laid the fictionalized foundation of Bram Stoker's novel. For example, the New England Vampire Panic and the sinking of the real-world ship Dimitri that served as an inspiration for Demeter, the ship that carried Dracula's coffins in the novel. Because all these stories were fresh in the public consciousness, the elements of Bram Stoker's novel would have seemed eerily familiar to the readers, even if they could not have consciously traced all these stories to their real origins. Stoker saw his vampire character Dracula as a manifestation of the devil. In the Romanian language today, Dracul means the devil but it is derived from the Latin word draco, which means dragon. Dragons and serpents have been historically associated with Satan, 
which explains the evolving etymology of the word. In his early manuscript notes, Bram Stoker refers to the character of Dracula as Vampire, and occasionally as Nosferatu, which suggests that he came up with the final name for his vampire character later. The etymology of the word Nosferatu is undetermined. There is no doubt that it achieved currency through Bram Stoker's writing. Stoker identified his source for the term as the folkloric work of British author and speaker Emily Gerard. Her work on Transylvanian folklore served as one of Stoker's primary foundational influences. It is commonly thought that Emily Gerard introduced the word Nosferatu into print in her magazine article Transylvanian Superstitions, and later in her travelogue The Land Beyond the Forest, since in Latin Transylvania means beyond the forest. In her writing, Emily Gerard claims that Nosferatu is an archaic Romanian word for vampire. However, to this day, it's impossible to determine the linguistic origins of the word. One of the suggested etymologies of the term is that it is derived from the Romanian nesuferitu, meaning the offensive one or the insufferable one. Prior Gerard's work, the word Nosferatu had already appeared in a German-language article by Wilhelm Schmidt. Schmidt's article, published in 1865, discusses Transylvanian customs, and Gerard could have encountered the word Nosferatu there, since she was a reviewer of German literature. Schmidt does not identify the language of the word explicitly, but indicates that it is not of a German origin. Schmidt's description is unambiguous in identifying Nosferatu as a vampire. Here's an excerpt from Schmidt's article that describes Nosferatu. Quote, At this point I come to the vampire, Nosferatu. It is this, the illegitimate offspring of two illegitimately begotten people, or the unfortunate spirit of one killed by a vampire, who can appear in the form of dog, cat, toad, frog, louse, flea, bug, in any form, in short, and plays his evil tricks on newly engaged couples as incubus or succubus." End quote. Schmidt expanded on his article in a monograph that came out one year after the article's publication, adding the observation that the vampire was the uncanniest spawn of national Slavic fantasy, and that his description was the Romanian perception. However, Nosferatu in that form does not appear to be a standard word in any known Slavic, or for that matter, Romanian language. Extrapolating from Bram Stoker's writing, the novelist likely believed that the word Nosferatu means undead, since this is the context in which the word seems to appear. Bram Stoker had a good grasp of his vampire character's backstory since the identity of Dracula is extensively discussed in the draft notes for the novel's manuscript. As a manifestation of the devil, Dracula represents the ancient evil. In the draft notes, Stoker describes Dracula as maintaining his lifestyle on the old gold of ancient riches, and is being unable to be moved by any art that has been produced after his death. Stoker conducted meticulous background research to bring his novel to life, including researching train schedules for his protagonist Jonathan Harker. The physical location of Dracula's castle was likewise chosen by Stoker in alignment with the ending, which was edited out from the published version of the novel. 
In the original version of the Dracula manuscript, the novel ends not with the beheading of Dracula, but with a volcano eruption that swallows Dracula's castle underground. In the Victorian era, volcanoes were considered to be portals to hell, which is why the ending of the novel was changed to give a perception of a better ending, where the good characters win. Otherwise, the original ending can be understood as ambiguous, since the body of Count Dracula returns to hell. When choosing a location for Dracula's castle on the map of Romania, Stoker wanted the castle to be positioned close to an inactive volcano. This is how we know that Stoker planned the volcano eruption ending to be a pivotal part of his novel. There are even speculations that Stoker possibly was planning a sequel to Dracula. Unfortunately, during Bram Stoker's lifetime and after, Dracula was not a commercial success and enjoyed mild popularity at best. Perhaps this can be explained by the extensive edits disrupting the narrative logic of the novel. Bram Stoker's widow, Florence, attempted to revive the interest in her husband's writing by publishing a short story, Dracula's Guest, excised from the original novel, but this attempt was not financially successful. Ever since its publication, Dracula has never been out of print, knowing that it is interesting that the novel didn't make much money for Bram Stoker or his estate. Stoker also hasn't registered his copyright in the United States, where Dracula entered the public domain even earlier than in Europe. It is thanks to the boom in public domain circulation that Dracula eventually became a classic. So how did Bram Stoker's novel got illicitly adapted into a German film? Well, this is a story drenched in occultism, mystery, and some good old marketing ploys. It all began with Albin Grau, an artist, architect, and occultist who started his own film company Prana Films to specialize in supernatural and occult cinema. Albin Grau acted as the, the main producer and production designer for Nosferatu and is largely responsible for the look and spirit of the film, including the sets, costumes, storyboards, and promotional materials. Indeed, it was Albin Grau who designed Count Orlok's terrifying and monstrous appearance. While promoting Nosferatu, Grau claimed that he was inspired to produce a vampire movie by an encounter during World War I. According to Grau, an old Serbian farmer told him that the farmer's father had been a vampire. Whether or not such a farmer has indeed existed is a matter of discussion. Grau's interest in supernatural and occult subjects ran deep. Besides his professional work, he was also a practicing occultist and, for a time, a member of the magical order Fraternitas Saturni, or Brotherhood of Saturn. Brotherhood of Saturn is one of the oldest continuously running magical groups in Germany, concerned with the study of, quote, esotericism, mysticism, and magic in the cosmic sense, end quote. Inspired by Bram Stoker's novel, Albin Grau hired a fellow occult enthusiast Henrik Galane to pen an expressionistic screen adaptation of Dracula. Alchemical and hermetic symbols even made it into the film's props. For example, Count Orlok's correspondence with his servant Nock contains genuine occult symbols provided by Grau. Before Grau and Murnau collaborated on Nosferatu, which was shot in 1921, Grau was planning to create several movies devoted to the occult and supernatural through his studio, Prana Film. 
but since Nosferatu was an unauthorized adaptation of Dracula, the studio had to declare bankruptcy in order to evade infringement lawsuits. Grau was attracted to F.W. Murnau's expressionist and innovative direction and camera work, which made him approach Murnau to direct Nosferatu in the first place. Yet beyond direction, from makeup to costumes, the nightmarish tale of Count Orlok unraveled on screen in accordance with Albin Grau's vision. Grau's control over Nosferatu's visuals extended beyond filming. He personally designed and executed many of the film's promotional materials. The ad campaign for the film ended up costing more than the film itself, capped off with an elaborate costume ball in the Berlin Zoological Gardens following the premiere. Some surviving posters, like the concept art, are striking depictions of horror and decay, a far cry from today's stock images of actors' faces. But blowing so much cash on the ad campaign did nothing to help the finances of Prana Film. And it wasn't Grau's worst business decision. Some would say it was Grau's lavish spending on the premiere campaign that attracted the attention of Florence Stoker, Bram Stoker's widow. After an unsuccessful attempt to extract money from Prana Film, Florence would later order to destroy all copies of Nosferatu, sending the fate of the film in jeopardy. But before we delve into the nightmarish tale of the battle for the film's survival, let us shed light on a brief biography of F.W. Murnau, the director of Nosferatu. Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau was a German film director, producer, and screenwriter. He is regarded as one of cinema's most influential filmmakers for his work in the silent era. An erudite child with an early interest in film, Murnau eventually studied philology, and art before director Max Reinhardt recruited him to his acting school. During World War I, Murnau served in the Imperial German Army, initially as an infantry company commander, and later with the German Army's Flying Corps as an observer and gunner. He survived several crashes without any severe injuries. After World War I ended, Murnau returned to Germany where he soon established his own film studio with actor Konrad Veidt. His first feature-length film, The Boy in Blue, 1919, was a drama inspired by the Thomas Gainsborough painting. Murnau's best-known film, Nosferatu, premiered in 1922, and is an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring German stage actor Max Schreck as the vampire Count Orlok. Nosferatu was released by the Prana film, a small German film studio founded by two occultists, Enrico Diekmann and Albin Grau. The first film produced by the studio, Nosferatu, was also its last. After the release of Nosferatu, Prana Film declared bankruptcy to avoid paying copyright infringement damages. Throughout the development and production of Nosferatu, Florence Stoker was unaware of the film's existence. In fact, it only came to her attention in April 1922, when a mysterious and unmarked letter was sent to her with a program from Nosferatu's March premiere. The program included the admission that the movie was freely adapted from Dracula. Florence Stoker quickly joined the British Incorporated Society of Authors and initiated a legal battle against Prana Film. The legal battle that followed dragged on for years until, in 1925, a German court ordered that all negatives and prints of Nosferatu be destroyed, 
By then, Nosferatu was no longer confined to Germany. Copies of the movie had crossed international borders when the court issued its ruling. As early as 1922, Stoker learned of showings of Nosferatu in Budapest, Hungary, and France. In October 1925, Florence Stoker learned that a London group called the Film Society intended to privately screen Nosferatu for its members. Event organizer Ivor Montagu had gotten a copy from an unnamed importer, who had tried and failed to sell it elsewhere. About this ordeal, Florence Stoker wrote in a letter to the secretary of an author's union that Montagu admitted that the film was purchased in Germany, but would not say from whom or whether it was already in this country. After a volley of cease and desist requests, the film society agreed to turn over their copy of Nosferatu. The record is silent on the exact fate of the film, but presumably the English print of Nosferatu was burned sometime in April 1929. Then the lawyers working on Stoker's behalf asked Montagu, who had an interest in film preservation, if any other Nosferatu prints remained. Montagu alluded to one copy in use in France. He had no direct knowledge of it, but had seen advertisements in Parisian newspapers. He also believed that at least one copy of the film had traveled to America. Some claim that Montagu was stalling Stalker in legal loopholes up until a copy of Nosferatu could make it to America, where the film was already in the public domain. Nosferatu had indeed crossed the Atlantic. Universal Pictures bought an illegal print, much to Stoker's frustration, and went on to produce its own properly authorized Dracula movie, starring Bela Lugosi in 1931. Why was it important for Nosferatu film to end up in the United States? In the United Kingdom, the length of copyright protection lasts for 50 years after the death of the author. This was the rule in many countries like the UK and Germany, which had adopted the Berne Convention. The United States did not adopt Berne Convention until 1989, so in America the film was safe from prosecution. Nosferatu is a remarkable example of a highly valuable work of art that nonetheless was considered to be plagiarized. Fast forward to the 21st century, films, games, and literature about vampires reuse the same tropes and ideas that both Stoker and Murnau helped to make the staples of vampire fiction. Who knows? Maybe in a hundred years, operatic film soundtracks will become an inseparable part of cinematic experience. Until then, we shall wait and see. Thank you so much for your relentless support and for helping to bring the horror and opera composition for Nosferatu to life. Even though this time it was a bumpy ride, your emails, follow-ups, requests for updates and comments made a lot of difference in the project's journey. Horror and opera will return again, and it will be bigger, better, and even more outrageous. The best way to keep in touch with the project is by signing up for the Horror and Opera newsletter. I only use the newsletter exclusively to notify patrons of upcoming projects and releases. I prefer not to use social media for, for this project because being constantly online gets really difficult these days. And I admit I miss the early days of the internet, where receiving emails or updates from your friends or favorite artists felt like magic. After all, Horror and Opera is a very exclusive, small patronage club, 
and I would prefer it to remain a small spark of something genuine in the waste seas of spammy, scammy internet. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for being an exclusive patron of Chthonic Arts. Till next we meet, yours truly, Alia Synesthesia.